Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We've taken Worldview on the road this week. We've been in London, Ontario, and Flint, Michigan. You can follow the trip at wbez.org slash wvbus or on social media. You can use the hashtag wvbus. And today I'm in Dearborn, Michigan. Dearborn is known for having the largest concentration of Muslims in North America. And we are at the Islamic Center of America. It's the largest mosque in North America. In this hour, we're going to get to know Dearborn and Dearborn's Muslim population a little better. And with me first is Sheikh Dr. Ibrahim Kazaruni. He is Imam for the Islamic Center of America. Thanks. Yay. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for hosting us. And this is a beautiful mosque and school you have here and a great community. Everything I see is terrific. Thank you for being here. I speak on behalf of everyone at the center, the board, and everybody else to welcome you here. It's a pleasure to meeting everyone. Can you tell us a little about the evolution of the center? I mean, when you become the biggest mosque in North America, there's got to be a story behind that. How much time do I have? <laughs> because uh, the reason why I ask for how much time, it's, it's a long story. Uh, it goes back to 1945-46. And even before, uh, because the Lebanese community that came and became the cornerstone of this uh, center and the previous center, uh, they immigrated to the United States, some of them even the late 19th century, before the 20th century. Around 1946, there was uh, a dire need for a religious scholar to be brought in, and they invited the founder of the Islamic uh, Center, uh, Sheikh, Marhum, uh, Sheikh Mohammed Jawad Shirri, which I believe as you go around the center, you see his image, few images of him. I've seen God it several bless, times. Yes, God bless his soul. And uh, over many years of hard work, and I mean hard work, uh, when you read the story behind what he did, and uh, finally he managed to travel around with the help of the community to start the foundation of the what used to be known the, the only Islamic center for the Shia community or Lebanese community on Joy Road, which I believe the building is still there, but uh, at the moment the Iraqi community primarily use it. And uh, around uh, 1990, 1994, they began to notice that that building was not sufficient and adequately adequate for the community. A plan was organized to move to a different place. And the ho this new building, uh, the land was purchased, built, uh, and ultimately around, I think, 2004, 2005 was the opening of the, the, this Islamic center. I've got to say, it's an interesting place here. This is called Altar Row. You've got a bunch of other faith neighbors here on Altar Row, and uh, it was really cool to see coming up. There, it, it, You're not alone in a, an isolated place. It, this is your parking lots are in a religious dialogue. Sure. Uh, I've been told that uh, people who fly to, uh, to Detroit and come down, they can actually see as if the plane uh, is close to landing, they can see this unique site. The only thing that we lack here is uh, a, a synagogue. Uh, a synagogue would have completed the Abrahamic faith in various 
a manifestation of it. So that hopefully one day it will be, uh, will be established. We're at the Islamic Center of America in Dearborn, Michigan. And today you can watch a live stream of this show on Facebook at WBEZ Worldview. And we're, we're sharing this stream uh, with the Islamic Center of America. And you can see it at their uh, Facebook site as well. Well, um, you know, what's it been like to grow so much? I am, you've been here about five years. And um, it, it, a big congregation, uh, it, there seems to be a lot of energy here. You've got a, a, a supple school program. Uh, you're able to do a lot of volunteer things. Um, can you give us a little idea of, of how the, con- the people move here? Well, the, uh, the, mo- the, the bigger the size of the community, obviously creates more potential and at the same time generates more challenges and that one has to deal with. Uh, the Islamic Center here, uh, as you indicated, uh, it's the biggest center, or if not the biggest, one of the biggest center in the United States. And uh, most of the congregations are tend to be from either Lebanese uh, or descendant of Lebanese community. Recently, from 1990 onwards, we began to see exodus of the Iraqi community coming in, and then Yemeni's community, then Syrians recently, Syrians uh, immigrant are coming to United States, are settling around the area. So it creates its own, its own unique uh, atmosphere and at the same time unique challenges. Uh, uh, there are cultural differences between uh, congregation and the community at large. Uh, so these are the issues that we have uh, as an Islamic center we have to deal with. I imagine there's a push and pull, a tug between, as there is in every faith organization, between people who want to be a little more traditional and people who want to move a little faster. Sure. I mean, that is normal. I have talked to uh, rabbis, uh, ministers and uh, others, they, this is a challenge uh, that every religious establishment faces. And uh, we have to deal with them. It's not just how fast, but we should be prepared to respond by at least addressing uh, some of the old issues and uh, creating new narrative, a new approach to it. I'm sure a lot of people listening don't really know how mosques are organized, but you've got a, a board of directors. It's a very democratic kind of thing. Lots of volunteers. Um, it, um, explain how that works. Well, let me just uh, add a comment. The, the mosques that we have in this area, at least for the Shia community, are divided into two groups. There are mosques that primarily relates to one religious individual who is happened to be in charge of that mosque, and he appoints a few individuals to be the board of directors or, or the board of trustees, etc. I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, this is the only mosque that is does not belong to an individual. It's uh, organically structured, that it has its own board of directors, board of trustees that they are elected. And uh, the religious, uh, men, I call it imam or religious scholar, works with the board of direct, uh, directors and uh, board of trustees. And um, it, it, this, uh, that's, um, 
that's got to be a good thing, right? I mean, that's got to help with the activity and vitality of volunteering and, and participating and, and getting people. Sure, in, in. to a degree it does. But sometimes it has its own challenges when we begin to see uh, differences of opinion developing on how to structure things. I'll bet. Uh, I'm talking with Ibrahim Kazaruni. He's imam for the Islamic Center of America. We're in Dearborn, Michigan. And I wanted to, to ask you a bit about your personal story as you talked about the various uh, immigrations that bolstered the, the mosque. You um, t- talked about Iraqis and you, are, you have a, an amazing story yourself. You, you came from uh, Iraq and came from uh, a family there. To explain what, where you came from. I don't think it's an amazing story, but it's a story. It's a story of my life, as they say. Uh, Originally, I'm from Iraq. My ancestors immigrated from Iran to Iraq about 120, 130 years ago. And I, from paternal side, they were born uh, in in Iraq, and I was born then. I was born in the holy city of Najaf on the southern part of Iraq. Uh, my paternal side of the family are mostly theologian, so I was destined, so to speak, <laughs> to become a theologian. Uh, the political event changed in Iraq, and in 1974 I was imprisoned uh, under Saddam's regime after five or six months of torture and so on. They released me, and I decided to leave Iraq. Uh, I traveled for a few years around Middle East to Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, and Iran. And ultimately, I realized that uh, the situation was becoming too, uh, how can I put it, uh, hot to stay in in that area. I decided to to leave the Middle East, and I ended up in the United Kingdom for a while. After the United Kingdom, I came to the United States for a while in uh, Colorado, and uh, about five years ago, I moved to uh, Michigan. that's a pretty incredible journey, and a journey that you share with many uh, people in the mosque in, in some way or another. I don't believe all of them know exactly the detail of this <laughs> journey, but uh, it's, it's, it's a journey. Um, I wanted to ask some about uh, the symbolism of the mosque in the greater United States, because um, there are groups that are worried about Sharia in America. and. Um, the picture of this mosque is usually the one that kind of goes up on the screen. And um, there's protests occasionally here. People come. Uh, how do you digest all that and understand uh, what it is? Here's a, there's a lot of people here who are trying to make a life and be the best Americans they can. And there's all this going on. See, this is one of the challenges of all minority communities when they come to a cosmopolitan society, multicultural, multifaceted, and the debate starts on their identity and uh, their political participation, socioeconomic participation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we are no different. How the general community reacts to our presence, I believe, has to be divided into two parts. Some of it is our responsibility to go out 
and uh, explain and introduce ourselves and what we stand for, the values, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and also work with the community on a, on a, a, gr a greater scope of things and uh, for them to see, invite them in. I mean, this is part of that debate. Uh, call it interfaith, whatever. Uh, but uh, I hope this is not going to be the last time that we meet. It will be the beginning of a fruitful relationship. And uh, so uh, we have challenges as minority to go out and explain ourselves and uh, remove misconception and misunderstanding, whether it's about Sharia or our presence and uh, relationship with others, as much as we hope others would respond to our own initiative and uh, hopefully uh, a bridge will be uh, built between the two communities. Is it frustrating that um, uh, the direction things have had it? You know, after 9-11, I had an imam on and he said, you know, I am going to redouble my efforts to explain my faith to people. I don't care if it takes me 10 years. I am going to, you know, move the needle on this and get the job done. And my heart sank. I mean, I when I really realized how long this is going to start. And now it's 19 years and we're still explaining. Is, is there something, is there a better idea of, of a way to go about this? Well, first of all, if you come up uh, with an idea that is more successful than what we have done and we are doing, uh, I believe I would be the first one to throw in the towel and look at uh, your, your options. <laughs> uh, those days, after nine, immediately after 9-11, uh, I, I used to be in Colorado at the time. And we approached a number of churches, synagogues, and centers, and Islamic centers, to find out what is the best methodology or approach that we should take so that we don't have to go through it. And I thought after 14 or 15 years, uh, we have made some headway into this until suddenly during the primary election, the same old narrative of Islamophobia and xenophobia and so on came to dictate. Uh, so it became an extra challenge. We are people, at least in this area, are uh, fortunate in the sense that we have huge centers uh, that they can come and stand shoulder to shoulder to, to, to prove to the rest of the community that look, these issues can only be dealt with when both communities work together rather than purely an, uh, the Muslim community or the other side. Um, Sheikh Ibrahim Kazaruni is Imam for the Islamic Center of America and he's hosting us today as we take Worldview on the Road. Thanks so much for hosting us and it's been great to meet you and let's continue it's the dialogue. A pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Here. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're on the road in Dearborn, Michigan at the uh, Center, Islamic Center for America. And we're going to talk now about families and Muslim American families in the area. And with me is Professor uh, Christine Ajrouche, and she teaches sociology at Eastern Michigan University. She's done extensive research in the Muslim community here. She's also an adjunct at the University of Michigan. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I wonder if you could um, give us a, a, an overview of, of your work and what you've been doing uh, and researching with Muslim families. Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. So uh, my research actually began almost 20 years ago 
on the topic of ethnic identity formation among children of Muslim immigrants. And not just Muslim immigrants, but Arab Muslim immigrants. And I was really uh, focused on understanding how ethnicity was defined and experienced among these children of immigrants. And from that experience, I actually got very interested in the topic of aging, believe it or not. Because one of the uh, topics that would come up among the adolescent children of immigrants is they thought they were different from regular Americans because they would never put their parent in a nursing home. So there was this wide conceived notion that there's a big difference between Americans and Arabs, um, especially Muslim Arabs, because they wouldn't uh, treat their elders in a negative fashion. Putting your parent in a nursing home was deemed as something very negative. So I became curious and wanted to understand more what the aging experience was like for Arab Americans and for Muslims in the metro Detroit area because I realized as a largely immigrant population, this was going to be the first generation to age, um, get old, grow older uh, in the metro Detroit area. So I wanted to learn what the challenges were, what the strengths were to help the community in the long run be able to address the challenges that would surely come their way. Uh, What has happened there? Because did did the challenges overcome uh, the stigma about putting someone in, in a nursing home or facility. Uh, you mean what has happened with that stigma? Yeah, uh, it's still there. It's, it's, <laughs> I would it's say still rocks out. Very, yes, yes, <laughs> it's it's very prevalent. Um, and part of the the problem, and I want to say that this stigma. Um, it's interesting because my study participant said that, but I also teach uh, at Eastern Michigan University, where the majority of my students are not. Arab American or Muslim, and um, the one of the things they say on the first day of class, I teach an aging and life course class, and one of the things they say is they think that wider American society is treating older people poorly, but they would never do that. They would never put their parent in a nursing home. So it's not a perspective that's unique to Arab Americans or Muslims. I think among, especially among young people, uh, there's a perception that out there that's happening, but it's not going to happen with them. And and part of the reason why that perception is there is because the media presents those kinds of stories when in reality only 5% of people age 65 and older are in a nursing home. Um, you know, I, I know you're working on an, uh, uh, some research about Alzheimer's. Yeah. And I, what, could you tell us about that and finding out about Alzheimer's in, in Muslim families? Sure. I'd be very happy to tell you about that. Actually, I have three projects that I'm currently leading um, with colleagues at the University of Michigan around the topic. And the first one is a... Um, Uh, resource center called the Michigan Center uh, for Contextual Factors in Alzheimer's Disease, which we affectionately refer to as McFAD for short. And what we do at that center is we organize community health learning events um, for the Arab American community, both Muslim and Christian. Um, in the metro Detroit area. Every other month we go to a specific venue and we we bring information about Alzheimer's disease um, to the community as a way to um, promote understanding, address um, the stigma around Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, and provide resources in terms of where to go to in case you need help. But a second goal of these events is also to promote um, the importance of research in the Arab American community and among Muslims, that we can't really understand the unique strengths and challenges of these communities unless um, they participate in research so that we know what the opinions, the values, the experiences are. Um, So that's one project. Do the challenges of Alzheimer's uh, get people to change their ideas about uh, getting help and, and getting people uh, oh, into facilities? Oh, that's a great question. That's a great question. Um, there, there's still a lot of um, 
misinformation about Alzheimer's, um, especially because uh, the Arab American and Muslim communities are, are um, primarily immigrant and, and aging as the first generation. A lot of times, um, losing one's memory or um, getting dementia is perceived to be normal. And so there's not a lot of um, effort to, to try to get help around um, that disease. And also there's the um, idea that if one does have the disease, it's embarrassing and they want to protect their uh, family member, their older family member from being out in public and being experienced or perceived as having memory loss. So there's a lot of stigma around it still. And that's one of the uh, issues that we'd like to address with McFad is to try to make a space for open dialogue, make a space for a safe space for people to talk about the challenges that they're having around Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. And can I just say one other thing, the Arabic word for dementia is actually extremely, has an extremely negative connotation, which we've learned from our McFad events. So even just finding ways to talk about it without automatically turning people off or thinking that they don't want to have anything to do with it because it's just too much of a stigma. Ah. Now, I know the census is involved in this somehow, and there's been some controversy about uh, whether uh, Middle East Eastern should be in the census or not as a descriptive. Is, yeah. and is that, um, would that help with research uh, to find out more a- about absolutely. the Absolutely, absolutely. That's one of the biggest uh, disappointments actually with this. Uh, the next uh, decennial census is that the category of Middle Eastern and North African, which would have been one of the ways that we could identify uh, Arab Americans in the um, census is not going to be included. And that creates a big challenge for us because Arab Americans are legally considered white in the United States of America. So even though there may be Arab Americans in large data sets, uh, they're hard to identify because there's not the the descriptor for them in terms of their ethnicity. Well, that that seems like... um something that um, would be easily remediable. (laughs) I don't understand why that doesn't happen. Um, Well, that requires um, the approval of the um, Office of Management and Business, I think, in the U.S. government. Budget. Office of Management and Budget. And there's a lot of politics around it. Yep. So there's just a lot of uh, challenges ahead of us. I mean, there's been an agitation for this kind of change for at least... uh, uh, over 30 years now, and it just hasn't happened. Uh, do you find that uh, as the generations uh, assimilate, that um, you you don't find changing attitudes on on this on you know healthcare and, and nursing homes and things? Uh, it, do, do people change their minds from assimilation? Um, that that is a. I, I can't answer answer that question with research, but what I will say is through um, some of the studies that I've been involved in, what seems to be clear is that individuals who've gone through the act of having to care for someone who's had uh, Alzheimer's disease and dementia oftentimes are pretty convinced that outside help is needed once they've been through it, not, not when they're in it, but they'll oftentimes tell their children, listen, if I ever get to that point, make sure you get help. Don't, don't put it all on yourself. I don't want you to go through what I went through. So it seems to be that the experience is going to be the changing factor more than anything else. What do you think people should know about um, Muslim American families? What, what, is that, what is out there that is a misconception that you think people should get straightened out on? About Muslim American families? Um, Probably um, the notion, the thing that comes to my mind is the gendered um, 
stereotypes around Muslim families. There's this, this enormous perception, I think, among non-Muslims that somehow Muslim women are oppressed, more oppressed than any other women in the world, when the reality is that in most countries and most cultures of the world, we live in a patriarchal society. It doesn't matter if you're Muslim or not, women face very similar challenges. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges we have. Well, um, it's fascinating to study what you're studying, and I congratulate you on, on your research, and I hope we, I wish you great luck. Thank you. And I'm talking with Dr. Christine Ajrouche, and she is a professor of sociology, anthropology uh, at uh, Eastern Michigan University, and she's done extensive research on families in the Arab and Muslim uh, community here in Dearborn. I am in Dearborn, Michigan, and uh, we're having a great time at the uh, Islamic Center of America, and we're going to stay, stay with us. We're going to talk a bit about another aspect of Dearborn, Michigan. It's the hometown of Henry Ford and a controversy surrounding an art article describing Ford's anti-Semitism made national news earlier this year. After the break, we'll talk with the author. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're on the road in Dearborn, Michigan. We'll be in Detroit tomorrow and Kalamazoo on Friday. You can follow the trip at wbez.org slash wvbus. On social media, use the hashtag wvbus. And you can stream this program right now on Facebook. You could go to WBEZ Worldview and see the program uh, on Facebook. One of the things you can't mistake about Dearborn is it's a Ford town. The birthplace of Henry Ford is home to the Ford World Headquarters. The Ford Integrated Factory, completed in 1928, is a National Historic Landmark. There's a Henry Ford Museum. There's the Henry Ford Centennial Library. Ford's personal estate is here. We're at the Islamic Center of America just off Ford Road. There is an Edsel Ford High School, a Ford Drive-In Theater. You get the picture. A controversy erupted earlier this year about an article in the Dearborn Historian that detailed Henry Ford's rather successful efforts to export his anti-Semitic beliefs. The article is entitled Henry Ford and the International Jew. The mayor of Dearborn tried to squelch the article. A furor ensued and the article went viral and was widely read and reported on. Henry Ford and the International Jew is written by Bill McGraw. He worked at the Detroit Free Press for 32 years and is in the Michigan Journalism Hall of Fame. He's here with us now. Thanks for joining us, Bill McGraw. Thank you for inviting me. You know, I think a lot of people know that um, Henry Ford had anti-Semitic beliefs, and they're a little vague about uh, the details. Um, but in your article, you kind of go through exactly what was going on, and it is pretty astounding. Um, you're focused a bit on the Dearborn Independent, which was something that he, he uh, purchased 100 years ago. Explain you know, the focus of your, your article. Well, our magazine uh, was called, or is called the Dearborn Historian. It's a quarterly, and it covers everything of historical interest in Dearborn. Excuse me. <clears throat> 
And so we knew that uh, January 19 and January 2019 was the 100th anniversary of Ford buying this newspaper. He bought it in 1919 when he was really almost peaking as a global celebrity after his successful car, uh, the Model T, obviously. And so um, the point was exactly as you said. Most people, especially educated people, have an idea that Ford was anti-Semitic, had some anti-Semitic thoughts. But very, very few people know that Hitler, when during his long struggle for power, had a, a portrait of Henry Ford sitting over his desk. So <clears throat> what I tried to do was bring research from all the various experts and historians who have written about Ford over the years, which even which everyday people don't read academic books and put it together in one story and that's what we did and uh, the publication the Dearborn Independent um, he had a lot of money and power and he went right out and hired some of the top writers and journalists and people he, he could uh, avail himself of in the Detroit area he, he, he hired top people to write in this thing Detroit then was the fourth biggest city in the country, so there was a lot of, there were three daily newspapers and lots of other media, um, and he raided the Detroit News for some of the best talent. And he was, you know, and of course he didn't start his anti-Semitic campaign at first. He, he took the Dearborn Independent and tried to make it into, I think, what readers might remember, like something like the Saturday Evening Post. Only it wasn't very interesting, and they weren't doing well, and Ford had lost some money in his first year. And that's when they started brainstorming about which direction they could go to get readers. And they were urged to be sensationalistic about whatever they did. And they chose uh, to um, go the anti-Semitic route. Explain how many copies of this uh, publication ended up getting out there. Because it did take off and there, there were a lot of them. Of uh, the, the Dearborn Independent yeah. you're talking about. Um, well, and it, you know, it wasn't so much the Dearborn Independent because back in, of course, the 20s, the Dearborn Independent only circulated in the U.S. But what I think is extraordinary about what Ford did and what is something most people aren't aware of is that he took the content of his 92-week campaign, anti-Semitic campaign in the Dearborn Independent and took that and put it into four books. And the books were all in, were, were entitled The International Jew. And those books were translated into more than a dozen languages. Uh, they particularly picked on Germany, thinking, I, I don't know why they picked Germany, but Germany was one of the um, locations where they concentrated the most. And after the, and this would have been in the 20s now. This is long before uh, Hitler came to power. But during the Nuremberg trials, some of the people who were on trial testified that they became interested in the Nazi ideology after they read, quote unquote, Mr. Ford's books. And you point out that these are still available. They were never copyrighted as in a sense to get, keep them being distributed. And they are still distributed uh, today. It's just the opposite. Ford's people. Now, remember, Ford Motor then was one of the was like the say the the Microsoft or the Google of that era. He had some of the best people working in every phase, and his marketing was unbelievable. And so he used that kind of marketing to put to um, uh, to not only sell the independent, but to sell the um, uh, the international Jew, and to to use that kind of um, savvy with the media to um, push their product. I guess is a way to put it. I'm talking uh, with Bill McGraw. He worked at the Detroit Free Press for 32 years, and uh, his article in the Dearborn Historian uh, 
ended up creating some controversy, and it was about uh, Henry Ford and his anti-Semitic beliefs. And I wanted to talk about the, the controversy element of it now, because uh, the mayor came out and kind of quashed the article in the Dearborn Historian. Uh, can you explain what happened there? Sure. When um, during the process of putting the issue together, and this was our biggest story, but was only one of several stories in the um, that edition of the uh, historian, uh, I was asked two or three times at meetings uh, with the museum staff, you know, what are you working on? And I told them, um, I'm working on a 100th anniversary of Henry Ford buying the uh, Dearborn Independent. I didn't go a lot farther. I waited for questions, and no one ever asked any questions. So they didn't see the final product until I, the printer delivered it to the museum. And as always, the curator took a few copies to, the, to City Hall and showed the mayor. And that's when there was some pushback that uh, we heard the mayor isn't sure about this. He doesn't know if it's going to come out. And so to be honest, um, I... Um, uh, I didn't want it to be squelched. I wanted people to read it. So I gave the article uh, in digital form to Deadline Detroit. It's a news website in the Detroit area, and that's where people can read this article, your listeners. And so that went up on uh, Deadline Detroit. I don't remember which day, and that kind of started the furor. And that's when, after that appeared on Deadline Detroit, is when the mayor decided he was going to kill the whole issue. But by that time, um, you know, it, it it had been out in public and anybody could read it. And that's when, unfortunately for the mayor, I think I've said it many times, he's a good mayor. Uh, this was a very puzzling decision. And unfortunately, he paid for it with the media coverage of what happened. Now, uh, I thought he, he wrote a letter about why he decided to do what he did. And Chris um, Squelch is saying, and I'll quote from it a little bit. Uh, he said, it was thought that by presenting information from 100 years ago that included hateful messages without a compelling reason directly linked to events in Dearborn today, this edition of the city-funded uh, historian would become a distraction from our continuing message of inclusion and respect. Um, how does that work with you, what you think? Well, um, I think one of the problems is today that people, uh, especially white people in America, are undereducated about things having to do with race and things having to do with anti-Semitism. And so... Uh, I think it's really important to go back and even if you're in a local publication, to make what you're reporting out of that uh, era, whatever you're reporting about in Dearborn, you're going to make it as truthful as possible, no matter how harsh that might seem, uh, you know, 100 years later. But I think that's important. And I think, uh, you know, I don't know if the mayor, if he would have it to do over again, if he would still issue that statement. But um, I think uh, Dearborn could have used this if they had wanted to as a great learning experience. And, a, and, it, and it would have been a very positive experience for Dearborn. Unfortunately, what the mayor did reinforced some old stereotypes about Dearborn that I think are very untrue in this day and age. But nonetheless, they're out there. Oh. Well, explain uh, explain more about what you mean, because, I mean, Dearborn has a long history of um, a segregation. There was a segregationist mayor here for uh, 32 years who did not allow African-Americans to live in Dearborn, and he was there till 1978. Um, there's been some rethinking about his statue that's downtown. I know you were involved in that. Um, there's been other mayors who... Um, campaigned on the Arab problem in in Dearborn. Can you say something about the kind of uh, contextualization of 
uh, these kinds of thoughts in Dearborn? Well, for your listeners, Dearborn is a, obviously a suburb of Detroit. It's on the western side of Detroit and surrounded by Detroit on three sides. So it's very it's a very long time intimate relationship with Detroit, both, both people-wise and, and geography-wise. But in, in Ford Motor, back in the uh, teen, the World War I era, before and after World War I, was, um, employed a lot of African Americans, probably more than any company in America. Henry Ford was known in the black community in Detroit for that. But Dearborn, both back in that era, and certainly in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, when the mayor we spoke about, Orville Hubbard, he was mayor actually for, I believe, 40 or more years. He was a hardcore segregationist that would use racial slurs when he spoke about uh, African Americans to the media even. So he didn't try and hide it. And he's been dead for a long time, but his statue uh, sat 10 feet high next to City Hall for many years, uh, passed every day, in fact, right across from the Arab American National Museum on Michigan Avenue. Uh, Dearborn has changed very much, obviously, over the years, not only with the Mideastern community, but it's becoming a much more integrated community racially, too, finally. So there was a lot of controversy about that statue, but gradually, and again, it was uh, Mayor O'Reilly from Dearborn who, you know, over about a year and a half period, they sort of de-emphasized the statue from being 10 feet high and being in a very prominent location to being just uh, normal size and being a very obscure location. And there's a plaque that talks about his segregationist policies in, by the statue. And for many years, this, they had three or four plaques around the statue in its old location. <clears throat> and you would have thought he was Winston Churchill if he read the, the plaques. There was nothing to talk about what most people in Metro Detroit who remember him remember him for, and that is his segregationist policies. Uh, Dearborn, so... Uh, can the conversation about Henry Ford be, uh, it's part of that sequence of events, really. And um, we were just talking with uh, Imam Kazaruni, and he was saying, uh, you know, we are the latest other. And in the history of the United States, that people are, seem to always look for others. And uh, this, is, um, this is kind of an American story right here. It is a very American story, and, um, you know, Dearborn is, uh, you know, every town in America is a very American town, but Dearborn's had this, um, these chapters of, uh, you know, uh, the hometown of Henry Ford, the, the Big Rouge plant, and all this, um, you know, Ford being here for so many years has been, a, you know, an incredible positive for Dearborn, obviously, for the most part. But um, and, the, and the Ford Corporation has been very um, good about all this for decades. I mean, since uh, Henry Ford died, they, they have... Uh, straighten things out. The Jewish community has praised countless times Ford Motor and especially when Henry Ford II was still alive and was running the company for what he did but even since he's been gone his uh, descendants have made Ford uh, a real activist when it comes to supporting uh, Jewish and even Israeli causes and especially cultural causes. And you've got a section in the Dearborn Historian where you talk about the, they um, they help with documents. They, they helped with... Uh uh, we, very upfront. Henry Ford was uh, spent a lot of time and energy documenting himself. His people did, I should say. <laughs> and uh, so Henry Ford, um, uh, there's a Benson Ford Research Center at the Henry Ford uh, Historical Complex in Dearborn. And it's not only a very good research center, but they'll work with you on controversial topics. 
Well, it's been fascinating talking with you about this and talking about uh, the history of Dearborn and the history of Henry Ford. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Bill McGraw, he's a veteran from the Detroit Free Press. He is in the Journalism Hall of Fame here in uh, Michigan, and he uh, wrote this article, Henry Ford and the International Jew in the Dearborn Historian, and you can read it online. And um, where, where is it again? If uh, anyone wants to Google uh, Henry Ford and Deadline Detroit, I think they'll find it very easily. Excellent. Uh, thanks for joining us, and congratulations on, on the discussion that has ensued. Thank you very much. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. We'll be back with more from Dearborn, Michigan, as we stay on the road here on Worldview. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're on the road at the Islamic Center of America in Dearborn, Michigan, and you might hear the afternoon prayers that have started here at the mosque. You can follow the trip on our website at wbez.org slash wvbus on social media. You can use hashtag wvbus, and we are on Facebook, streaming on Facebook at WBEZ Worldview today. We're going to talk now about an exhibit. Uh, it's actually a series of exhibitions that explores fact, fictions, and the imaginaries of the Muslim population in the Detroit and Southeast Michigan area. It's called Halal Metropolis. And with me now is Razi Jaffrey. He is a photographer and activist. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. And Sally Howell is here. She is director of the University of Michigan uh, Dearborn Center for Arab American Studies. Great to meet you, Sally. Nice to meet you as well. Um, what you're doing with these, uh, this exhibit is to kind of pull back the lens on the community and the perceptions of the community. Um, can you give us some a thumbnail sketch of, of who is out there in the wider uh, Muslim community here in Detroit? Sally, do you want to take a look at that? Sure. The Muslim community here, as you've heard a little bit of, has been here for over 100 years. It's a very old community. You have families, again, that are second, third generation Muslim American. A lot of the early immigrants who came here came from Syria, what is today sort of Syria, Lebanon, uh, that, that part of the Middle East. Um, you also had in the very early period, you had Bangladeshi and Turkish immigrants, uh, people from the Balkans, Muslims who came, most of these people came to work for the Ford Motor Company or the other automakers in Detroit in the early 20th century. Um, the African-American community also started converting to Islam in that early period of the 1920s and 30s. The Nation of Islam was founded here in Detroit in 1930. Uh, so you've got this really big dynamic population of Muslims who have been here for a long time. But in the 1960s, when our immigration laws changed, you also saw new groups of people coming. The fastest growing immigrant community in Southeast Michigan right now is coming from India and Pakistan and Bangladesh, South Asians. Many of those populations are Muslims. We have African, especially West African immigrants who are moving to the area. And Dearborn itself, where we're sitting today, is really a product of all the immigration that started um, during the Lebanese Civil War and has just sort of continued in the, the, you know, all the way through the last century and into this new century with new migrations coming, often that were sort of launched or set in place by uh, civil conflict in places like Iraq, Syria, Yemen. 
Um, Razi, do you want to expand on that or contribute to that a little bit? I think one of the important things that um, I always want to stress to people when talking about Muslims in America, it's very difficult to say uh, Muslims believe this or Muslims believe that because Islam is the most ethnically diverse uh, religious community in America. And uh, Muslims are represented in the United States um, by people from all different backgrounds. And so it makes it really challenging then to talk about what Muslims believe because it depends on which Muslims you're talking about. Um, so that's the other thing I think I would add to that, but yeah. It's also really exciting. Whenever I go to a pan-Muslim event and I see all the different people there, it, it's um, it's great. It's like the United Nations just dropped down on the the, the conference center. Yeah, absolutely. And as, as a photographer, I, I always joke with people like, you know, I, I feel like I have a passport, you know, that allows me to access all these different communities because I'm constantly working in different communities of different backgrounds and I'm learning new things about the faith, both in practice and in culture uh, that I never knew before. How do you begin to wedge this into a exhibition? Um, you, you, you're, you're a photographer, but there's more than just photography in this. You're kind of doing a lot of things. So the exhibit that we're working on is called Halal Metropolis, and it examines Muslim visibility in Southeast Michigan. Uh, what that means is how Muslims um, create visibility for themselves, how they become visible in the public space, and how often non-Muslims create that visibility or how they accommodate Muslims uh, in the public space or through commerce. Um, we're also looking at uh, elements of Muslim life through design, architecture, culture, and music. So for me as a visual artist, it has to do with capturing that through photography, film, um, audio recordings. And then we've invited uh, Muslim artists from the area as well to contribute work uh, and to uh, meditate or contemplate the idea of visibility and what it means to them. So that also comes through their work that they're submitting. Uh, through textiles, through uh, video installations, through sculptural work, but we're also planning a series of panels and performances as well. Um, Sally, do you have a favorite piece in the exhibit or things that uh, you think people should uh, hear about? Well, I think of my favorite piece. So the exhibit, as it moves from space to space, uh, each time we install it, it's going to reflect the the specific history of the Muslim community in that space and the, the specific ways in which the Muslim community in that space is visible. Right now, we're showing in Detroit, uh, right on the same block with the Muslim Center of Detroit, which is the city's oldest African-American mosque. So we're really concentrating on their history and their their the, the ways in which they're shaping that space, both past and present. And my favorite thing in the installation right now are these portraits that Razzie did on the Eid, um, the, the end of the, the, the month of Ramadan. There's a big holiday, and at the Muslim Center of Detroit, people from all over the city come to worship there for the holiday, to do their holiday prayer. And in this particular community, they dress up in their very finest clothes. And, uh, and so their clothes, some people are dressing up and, you know, they look like they could be going to church on Sunday, on Easter Sunday. Other people look like they're, you know, coming straight from Africa. People just dress in this whole variety of costumes and they're very proud and families will dress up all resembling one another, sort of wearing matching clothing and it's just beautiful and the portraits that Razi took of this were fantastic. He was also Thank here. You. He was here at the Islamic Center of America taking portraits too on the same day and we're going to continue this sort of portraiture during the holidays and so by the end of the exhibition we'll really have, we'll have a display of this diversity that we're talking about. 
I was struck by some of the uh, photography that was about um, commercial, I don't know what to call it, acceptance or commercial products that were uh, gearing themselves towards the Muslim community. Um, it, that, that seems to be something you look at too, Razi. Yeah, I, when I'm explaining the project, I'll, I'll often um, uh, mention a couple of examples of this. And one of my favorite ones is when you walk into Whole Foods um, during Ramadan or Eid, they'll have signage marketing and, and saying, you know, uh, slogans like get ready for Ramadan, stock up on your uh, Ramadan goods, you know, and you see this in Myers, Kroger's, um, Home Depot has signs in Arabic, Target as well has um, Eid and Ramadan gift cards that you can buy uh, today, uh, Macy's as well, and uh, they have uh, a hijab line that they that they carry in their, in their stores, uh, in some of their stores, and so it's really remarkable to see that. And uh, the way that we've defined what a halal metropolis is, it's a place in which uh, Muslims can live freely as Muslims and contribute to that society with all of their, uh, contribute to that community with all of their talents um, and become visible in that community. And so what we see here in Metro Detroit is that it is quintessentially a halal metropolis. Now, one of the interesting things you're doing with the exhibit, and you're going to be moving it around for two, three years now, uh, you're going to take it to places where the Muslim community is not visible. What, what, what will happen there? Well, our intention uh, is to help people think about the fact that even though Muslims aren't necessarily visible, that doesn't mean they're not there. So, for example, when we go to Macomb County, the Muslim community has been in Macomb County since really since uh, the city started expanding. The suburbs were, were being created there. Uh, very often in those spaces, you see Muslims become visible. You read about them in the newspaper and things like this. In the, when, when people are opposed to their presence in the city, when people try to organize a mosque or something like that, and people come out in opposition to them. So what we're trying to do is just sort of lay the groundwork and sort of say, okay, this community's been here for a long time, talk about who they are in that community, and talk about the ways in which Muslims have transformed these other landscapes, uh, uh, supporting the economy of the region, uh, uh, supporting the cultural efflorescence of the region, and sort of helping that community think through what this new Muslim, vi Muslim visibility in their environment will mean. If people want more information and want to check out some of the uh, photographs from Halal Metropolis, where do they go? We have a website, halalmetropolis.org, and you can find us on social media, um, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, all at the handle um, at Halal Metropolis. Razi Jaffrey is a photographer and activist behind Halal Metropolis, and Sally Howell is director of the University of Michigan Dearborn's Center for Arab American Studies. Thanks for joining me and talking about your exhibit and the community. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. I want to thank a few people here, and uh, it has been great to be here. Really enjoyed it, and really welcoming community here. Uh, thank you, Dr. Sheikh, uh, Dr. Ibrahim Kazaruni, Imam for the Islamic Center of America, for hosting us here in Dearborn. A huge thanks to Donna Jawad from the uh, Islamic Center of America for help and hospitality, and thanks to Mervet Kadu and Mohammed Bondar for dinner last night. You are the definition of welcoming people, and uh, really enjoyed the community here. One of the first things that Chicago's new mayor did when she came into office was to put an end to water shutoffs. 
Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to stay on the road and uh, to be in Detroit, Michigan, and we'll take a look at the highly controversial practice of water shutoffs in Detroit. Don't forget, you can follow us on our road trip at wbez.org slash wvbus. We are on social media at hashtag wvbus. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Production assistants are Ashish Valentine and Jenny Friedland. J. Kyle White Sullivan is our engineer on the trip. Hope you can join us tomorrow. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Thank you.